Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. This week, we're shining the spotlight on the science of light, including finding out how scientists are probing fossilised light left over from the Big Bang. We check out the latest bionic eye that can restore vision, and we hear why Newton stuck a needle in his eye, all in the name of science. I took a bodkin and put it betwixt my eye and the bone, as near to the backside of my eye as I could. One word. Ouch. Also this week, the stories making the headlines from the world of science and technology, including a revelation in how chameleons change colour, scientists discover where the ouch zone in the brain is, and why we sniff our fingers after shaking someone's hand. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. On the 12th of March, celebrated author Satari Pratchett very sadly passed away after a public eight-year battle with Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's, which causes progressive loss of mental faculties, affects 40 million people around the world, and this number is expected to triple in the coming decades as the world population ages. But apart from symptomatic relief, there are currently no treatments that can actually halt the disease process. But now University of Queensland scientist Gerhard Leiniger has found that ultrasound waves can be used to remove from the brain the toxic chemical amyloid beta, which, scientists think, causes Alzheimer's disease. You can think of the Alzheimer's disease brain as, as a toxic environment for the cells in the brain. And one of the main creators of this toxic environment is this molecule called amyloid beta, which stops nerve cells communicating with each other, and it also impacts on their health and survival. So we knew that there was a, a high concentration of amyloid beta in the brain, and a low level in the bloodstream. And we wondered whether we could remove or flush out some of this amyloid beta by making the blood-brain barrier leaky. It would effectively ooze out of the nervous system and into the bloodstream. Potentially some mechanism like that. How easy is it to temporarily make the blood-brain barrier leaky then? Up until very recently, difficult or impossible to do this in a way that was safe and reversible. So we used a new technology called uh, ultrasound, to open the blood-brain barrier. So ultrasound is basically the, just the application of sound waves. How does the ultrasound open up the blood-brain barrier? So it does this through an interaction with molecules injected into the bloodstream called microbubbles. These are little gas-filled shells. The ultrasound makes them expand and contract, and this affects the blood vessels of the brain so that it makes the barrier slightly leaky. You could think of it as little holes or slight leaks between the cells where molecules can squeeze past. And how do you know that's actually working? How do you know that the blood-brain barrier is being dismantled, albeit temporarily, by this process? You can inject a molecule that normally doesn't get into the brain when you inject it into the blood. And what we found is that these molecules were present in the brain. We could detect them after the treatment. And what about when you repeat this and you do this with mice that have this mouse equivalent of Alzheimer's disease? What happens to them? So when we opened the blood-brain barrier in these mice over uh, a course of treatments, we found that the amyloid beta levels were reduced by about 50% and that the memory of the mice was improved. So how do you think it works? One of our original hypotheses was that the amyloid beta could be flushed out into the bloodstream through a leaky blood-brain barrier, but we couldn't detect high amyloid beta levels in the bloodstream. So I wanted to look after that, what was going on actually inside the brain, Another way that the amyloid beta levels can be removed is through the actions of microglial cells in the brain. These cells have some ability to 
eat the amyloid beta and remove it. What I found was that after the course of the ultrasound treatments, the ability of the microglia to eat the amyloid beta was about doubled. These cells were effectively consuming and removing the toxic protein that had built up. And was that what, rendering it safe? That's what we found within the microglial cells in compartments that normally degrade it or or chew it up and, and make it safe. Could there not be a downside to albeit temporarily, dismantling your Mm -hmm. blood-brain barrier. Presumably it's there for a reason. Mm. When we think about opening or making the blood-brain barrier slightly leaky, we need to think about it being made leaky to some molecules but not others. So the size of the opening of the blood-brain barrier is enough, say, for smaller molecules and proteins to get into the bloodstream but not large enough for, say, bacteria or viruses to, to get into the brain. We didn't see any side effects in the mice that we treated. In fact, their behavior was improved and there was no damage to uh, their brains or or the cells in their brains. Would you regard this as a possible therapy for humans? I think it is a possible therapy for humans. Once we can scale up and adapt the technique from treating a very small brain, uh, such as the mouse brain with a thin skull, to a large brain like a human brain with a thick skull, uh, I think that this could definitely be applied uh, potentially in Alzheimer's disease patients. Let's hope so. That's Gerhard Leiniger. He's from the University of Queensland. We've all experienced the sensation of pain from an annoying paper cut to the intense agony of breaking a bone. Scientists have long been looking for the part of the brain that decodes how much something hurts. And now Oxford University's Andrew Segedal thinks he's identified this human ouch zone, which is catchily called the dorsal posterior insula, as he explained to Danielle Blackwell. Pain is a complex and multidimensional experience, and anyone who's suffered pain, either chronic or even just a bout of of really bad headache, can tell you that is the case. It involves not just features of how intense it is and where it is on your body, but also it often can involve memories of previous pain experiences um, or even more emotional types of experiences like anxiety about when it will stop or why it's arising. So pain becomes complex to study because every time you put someone in pain, you have to deal with each of these variables. So what is this new technique that you have used and how did it help you decipher the brain region that is involved in pain intensity? So the brain imaging approach that we used is ASL, which stands for arterial spin labeling. And what ASL does is as your brain is is working and you're thinking and you're using different parts of your brain, those different parts of the brain need oxygen to be active. And arterial blood is the main delivery system for oxygen So what this type of imaging approach does is it actually uses those principles and we can use that to actually tag the blood so that it actually becomes a signal that can be photographed with the imaging approach. Um, And we can actually start to make calculations about absolute amounts of blood that have flowed to a region A versus a region B. What you were looking at then is the changes in blood flow and I guess the changes in blood flow are a marker of changes in how much brain activity is going on in that particular region. Exactly. So how did you use this to look at changes in brain activity? Were you changing the pain intensity at the same time? Exactly. So the subject will lie down in the scanner, we put them in, and then we put a bit of capsaicin cream, which is like a chili pepper cream, onto their leg. And gradually, that experience goes from being totally innocuous, you don't feel anything, to slightly warming, 
And then gradually over time, that warming starts to become painful and it gradually habituates. So that word means that it, it essentially the pain starts to go down a little bit. What you can then do is actually track how that pain intensity is changing by asking subjects to actually rate how much pain are you feeling at this moment. And we're actually scanning them as well at the same time. And we do this for about a two hour period of time. And it's that which allowed us to actually zone in on the dorsal posterior insula as tracking that change in pain intensity as it unfolds. So you were able to map the changes in pain intensity that the participants were reporting with the changes in activity and blood flow in this particular region of the brain. That's exactly how we how this type of approach works. How easy is this technique to do? Is it something that we could be using soon to understand if people are in pain? So, for example, if people aren't able to communicate, could we still find out how much pain they might be in? The short answer is that at the moment, actually, we're at a stage where brain imaging is becoming really common clinically. So we see really nice high-powered scanners being uh, installed in hospitals globally. So we very much are hopeful that this type of a result becomes potentially very helpful, as you say, to image those populations that don't have the capacity to communicate how much pain they may or may not be feeling. So I'm thinking about people like infants, small children, those that may be in a comatose state or experiencing dementia, um, where we could really understand how much pain they may be experiencing, or in another way, how much relief they may be experiencing with a new type of pain therapy. Oxford University's Andrew Segedal. Now, also in the news this week, how we can use LED bulbs to transmit Wi-Fi to your computer. And also, when did humans begin to change the world beyond all recognition? You can hear two interesting interviews about both those things, along with other uh, interviews on thenakedscientist.com forward slash specials or by liking us on Facebook. Still to come, of course, how chameleons change colour and scientists show what people do after shaking hands. Yep, they sniff their fingers, would you believe? Charming stuff. But first, FameLab is an international science communication competition where contestants take to the stage and talk to the public about science. During the last month or so, heats have been held in cities across the UK and we've been hearing from the finalists here in Cambridgeshire recently. This region's champion has now been announced and he's set to compete with other regional winners next month for the chance to go head-to-head with scientists from across the world in June. And he is with us now. It's Max Gray. Hi, Max. Hello. So how does it feel to be in the finals? Uh, it feels great, actually. I'm slightly surprised still, but uh, no, it feels it feels fantastic. Now, your winning talk was about Nemo, the clownfish. Is this what you actually work on as a researcher? No, it's not. I work and I do work on the behaviour of fish on coral reefs, but not um, on clownfish. I actually work on on cleaner wrasse, which are fish that you find throughout the Pacific. Well, let's hear your prize-winning stuff. So, if you could give your, us your three minutes about Nemo. Yes, of course. So usually when I introduce myself to new people, what I uh, tell people is that I'm a marine biologist. What I do is I I study the behaviour of fish in coral reef communities, and their reaction at that point is usually, oh, you know, something like Finding Nemo, which it's not quite, but regardless, that film isn't actually a bad portrayal of what a reef ecosystem looks like. And what people often follow this up with is a question like, how accurate is the film? And moreover, do the inaccuracies annoy me? 
which is ridiculous. It would be like asking any other zoologist whether the inaccuracies in The Lion King would annoy them, as if anybody was going to go to the savannah and expect to see an immaculately choreographed dance routine performed by giraffes and zebras. So no, it doesn't annoy me. That being said, what I am going to talk about is exactly that, those inaccuracies in Finding Nemo and why it would be a very different film indeed if it were biologically accurate. The reasons this is the case is because two very interesting details of uh, how clownfish and anemone fish in general behave. First off is something called sequential hermaphroditism, which is where the fish start off, broadly speaking, sexless or ungendered, if you will. And then as they grow and they become the second most dominant individual in their little anemone society, they become male and they develop testes. And as they progress and they take over as the biggest, most dominant individual in that society, they change sex to become female. So, if you remember the film in Finding Nemo, at the beginning of the film, you have a breeding pair of clownfish. And they're happy, they've just created a nice large brood of eggs together. And unfortunately, what happens next is that the female, the motherfish, gets eaten by a barracuda. So far, so accurate. That does happen. However, what would have happened next would be that her death would have triggered Nemo's father to undergo a sex change and become a new mother which would have made for an interesting film, although possibly more of an art house than a blockbuster flick. Now, the second thing that's very interesting about these fish is something called filial cannibalism. And this is the process by which fish, or any animal in fact, will eat their offspring if something goes wrong and they find themselves in a disadvantaged situation. And in the case of clownfish, new parents, which they are in the film, are even more likely to do this. They do this with alarming regularity. So what's really likely to have happened in a sort of Finding Nemo situation is that the mother fish will have died. The father slash now mother fish will have eaten all of the eggs, including Nemo, which would have produced a very different film indeed with a cannibalistic transsexual parent. Max Gray and what we didn't know about the real life Nemo. Male chameleons have a well-deserved reputation as the colour-changing kings of the natural world. They quickly switch their skin colour into a wonderful array of hues. But how do they do this? Previously, it was thought that chameleons perform this quick change by shuffling chemical pigments around in their cells in their skin. But there wasn't actually any evidence to support the idea. Now, Michel Milinkovic and his team at the University of Geneva have taken a much closer look using a high-powered electron microscope. What they've discovered is that a special layer of colour cells in the chameleon's skin, called iridophores, contain tiny nanocrystals that bend light, and they give the reptiles their colour-changing abilities. We came up with this um, crazy hypothesis that given we didn't see how the animal could change colour, we, we thought that maybe what is happening is that this animal were able to actually tune the distance between their nanocrystals because that would, of course, shift the light that is reflected. The um, photonic crystals act like a, a selective mirror. All light is going through except a specific wavelength that will be reflected with 100% efficiency. So what you get is a very bright and very pure color. But the wavelength that is reflected specifically is a function of the distance between the successive layers of materials. 
So would be uh, uh, when the distance is very short, it would be blue light, and when the crystals are more distant from each other, it would be more yellow or red light. Then when you shift the organization of these layers of crystals, then it basically goes a different color. Were you surprised when you realized that this was happening? Yes, we were. We never thought that actually there would be a possibility for the animal to actively modify the geometry of the um, photonic crystal to change the distance among the nanocrystals. How do you think that the chameleons are doing this? Maybe they do it the same way as we recapitulate the uh, phenomenon ex vivo. We take a piece of skin, we put that in a petri dish, and then we change the concentration uh, uh, in salt, basically, uh, of the solution in which we keep the, the sample of skin. And therefore, the cells will shrink or, or swell depending on the amount of salt that you put in the system. Okay? That will mean that the, the crystals get closer or further apart. Exactly. That's what we were hoping for, is that by changing the geometry of the whole cell, you would force the lattice of nanocrystals to also shrink or swell. And that's what is happening. We see exactly that. We see really single cells uh, going from red to blue, uh, passing by all the other uh, uh, wavelengths uh, of uh, uh, of the spectrum. It must be wonderful to work in your lab and see all these beautiful colours changing in front of you. It must make you think that nature and chameleons are just quite amazing. Yeah, these are amazing creatures. Actually, that's probably the reason why uh, there is so much interest uh, for for these results. People really love chameleons because they have many different features that are spectacular. They have these uh, protruding tongue that they can project at a distance to you know capture a prey. Uh, uh, they have these weird uh, feet, and then they have these uh, spectacular abilities to change color, which is uh, really uh, uh, something unique in in, uh, in lizards. They have an amazing toolkit in their skin. And they're just amazing. Michel Milinkovic, he's from the University of Geneva. Now, Chris, I have a question for you. The last time you greeted someone, did you shake their hand? Well, it was my wife. But um, she probably would have looked at me rather strangely had I done that. But yes, if it was a stranger, I almost certainly would endeavour to shake their hand. Now, here's another question for you. What did you do with your hand afterwards? No comment. Well, you probably didn't realise it at the time, but the likelihood is that you subconsciously brought it up to your face. And sniffed it. Using hidden cameras, Israel's Weizmann Institute researcher Idan Fruman has found that we humans do the socially more acceptable equivalent of what two dogs do when they first meet. People tend to sniff their own hands following a handshake. We first noticed that anecdotally. We just saw people do that after meeting new people. And we set to find out if it's really something that we can describe as an effect. How did you actually do it then? Were you literally asking people to shake hands and then seeing what they did afterwards? The design was very simple. We put people in a room without uh, knowing they were being filmed. After about two minutes, an experimenter went into the room and either shook or didn't shake their hands. We filmed them for an additional two minutes. We measured the time their hands spent near their noses the results were very uh, substantial increase in the time that the right hand spent near the nose when there was a handshake. Your interpretation of that would be that having shaken someone's hand, there's been a transfer of chemicals 
from the skin of one to the other. And therefore, if you give your hand a sniff, you're effectively sampling the chemical makeup, the chemical fingerprint, the odor profile of your opposite number. Right. This is what we think. And we also check that. We, we actually uh, measured if we can transfer chemicals from one person to another. We uh, put gloves on an experimenter and shook their hands to see if something is left over from a handshake on this glove. And we saw that there are a host of chemicals that are transferred. Is there evidence that when a person brings their hand to their nose, they're actually sniffing their fingers? Could it not be that they're just rubbing their face or something? This was one of our main concerns, to show that this is indeed uh, something to do with the sense of smell. So we measured that using a nasal cannula. It's basically a, a tube placed under the people's nose. We can measure the airflow using this instrument. And we unequivocally saw that when a hand is approached to the nose, there is a great increase in airflow, meaning there was a sniff involved. I don't know about you, Idan, but when I read your paper, the first instinct I had was to immediately look down to see what I was doing with my hands and where they were, and I became conscious of every time after that that I began to bring them close to my face. It, it's one of those awful things, a bit like when uh, you see someone yawn and you want to yawn and someone says they're itching and you want to scratch. Are you now sort of obsessed with what you do with your hands? Uh, pretty much so, and I also um, observe that all the time. Uh, and it's very funny to uh, to see when we present that in uh, in conferences, how people start to observe each other and themselves and to see what they do with their hands after they uh, shake hands. It's pretty amusing, yes. Smell my finger indeed. That's Edan Freeman from the Weizmann Institute in Israel. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. And now we're moving out of the news and into the light. 2015 has been designated the Year of Light by UNESCO, and so we're recognising it by devoting the second half of this week's programme to it. Coming up, we'll hear how scientists first struggled to explain what light actually is, how our eyes detect it, and how bionic implants are being built to restore sight, and also how scientists are probing the oldest light in the universe to unlock the secrets of the Big Bang. Although, when they were doing this, when it was first found, the discoverers initially thought they'd found something quite different. One of the possible explanations was that it was actually pigeon droppings in the antenna that they were using to look at the sky. And we'll find out what that's all about later on in the show. To most people, light refers to something that comes in a range of colours and is something you can see. But visible light is actually part of a much larger electromagnetic spectrum that ranges from long wavelength radio waves at one end of the scale to very short wavelength X-rays and gamma rays at the other. The part of the spectrum that we can actually see sits roughly somewhere in the middle. And to complicate matters further, sometimes light behaves as though it's a wave, while at other times it behaves like a stream of tiny particles. One of the pioneers of the study of light was Isaac Newton. Greg Jackson went to meet historian Scott Mandelbrot to see some of Newton's original notebooks, which are kept under very strict security at Cambridge University Library.
As we've walked down these aisles, we've walked past Charles Darwin, and now that we're in Newton's Isle, I can see Kelvin's papers, and a bit further down, Ernest Rutherford's. It's a staggering collection of, of scientific manuscripts. Yes, well, the University Library holds one of the finest collections of scientific manuscripts in the world, and has held Newton's papers since the late 19th century. The papers I had come to see had been especially laid out in the manuscript reading room. Oh, I'm so excited! As you may be able to hear, I was just a tad amazed at the thought of seeing the original notebooks that Sir Isaac Newton himself had handwritten. Well, we're now in a room which has a number of Newton's papers, a wonderful collection and some of the most important things that Newton wrote. And they're in fantastic condition, and I'm beginning to see why, because they're beautifully laid out on what looks like individual pillows for each and every single notebook. I wonder if we could focus on this one in particular, because it's a sort of an A5 notebook, and there's a what looks like an eyeball with a stick pointing at it. What's he describing here? Well, what he writes is, I took a bodkin and put it betwixt my eye and the bone as near to the backside of my eye as I could, and pressing my eye with the end of it, there appeared several white, dark, and coloured circles, which circles were plainest when I continued to rub my eye with the point of the bodkin. Yes, you did hear that right. Newton peeled back his eyelid and stuck a bodkin, or what we call them today, a giant needle between his eyeball and cheekbone. He also stuck a brass plate in there too, and later stared directly at the sun until he went blind. Fortunately, Newton's eyesight recovered in all incidences. Why bother, you may wonder? Well, Newton was interested in the nature of light and how we see things around us. This particular experiment was designed to see if colour was the product of the outside world or created within the mind. And although sticking a needle in his eye didn't exactly determine this, it was one of many steps that led him to demonstrate how white light is made up of seven individual colours. Prior to this revelation, it was widely believed that light was pure and that colours were created by the mixing of light and darkness. So white light is seven colours combined. But what physically is light? I met Zephyr Panoia, a trainee physicist at Cambridge University, on the river to see if he could give me any answers. Newton was one of the big supporters of the idea of light as a particle, which he believed in because he saw how light reflected in straight lines off a surface, just like a ball bouncing off a surface. Thomas Young came along and he said, no, Newton, you're wrong. What did he say? He came up with a fantastic experiment where you take two small slits in a piece of material and shine a light on them. And if Newton was right, what we'd see is two dots of light. I can it, see that working. It does seem to make sense, but actually, if you do it, you don't see that. You see a series of white and dark bands. A bit like a barcode, then? Yeah, it looks exactly like a barcode, and this is a thing that only waves do. We've got here two poles and a river, and I'm going to show what interference looks like. OK, let's go for it. We have two punt poles, because we are on the river cam, and you're going to dip them in and out of the water at the same time. Yep, so I'm going to dip them in and out. Oh, they're quite heavy. 
<laughs> and we're seeing a series of ripples from both of the poles, as you'd expect, like you drop a stone in, in a pond, you see the ripples cast out. But actually, where the ripples meet, something quite interesting is happening. What a ripple is, is a series of peaks and troughs moving outwards from point. But where the two ripples meet, some places the peaks are together and they add up, some places the troughs are together and they add up, but some places the peaks and troughs meet and they add up to nothing. Because waves have this property of adding up and cancelling out, this is exactly why we see this series of light and dark stripes on the wall. And this is why Young's experiments proved that light must be a wave. Problem solved. That's what I saw in my textbooks when I was 16. Light is a wave, right? Well, yeah, light is a wave. But now the next issue is how light travels. So we know that sound waves must move through a solid object or through air. Water waves must move through water. So what does light move through? Air? Is it not the same? Well, we know that light move, does move through air because we see light on Earth, but we also see light moving through space. And we know space is a vacuum. Sound can't travel through space because there's nothing to transfer the vibrations in space. But somehow light does. And that was the next question which really puzzled scientists. How does light travel then? Someone called James Clark Maxwell came along who showed that it's mathematically true that electric and magnetic fields can make waves. And he put this together to show that light is actually variations in electric and magnetic fields. And this not only explains how light travels through a vacuum, but also explains things like how light comes in different colours and is different temperatures and energies. Different wavelengths of light have different properties, and that's where your radio waves, microwaves and x-rays come in. It's all light, but just in different forms. Light, then, is a wave, and we can all breathe one big sigh of relief. Well, sadly not. Einstein came along with the photoelectric effect. He noticed more electrons were emitted from a metal when certain colours of light were shone on it. This is weird because, well, waves shouldn't have that effect on electrons. Particles, on the other hand, do. So Einstein said, hey, you know what? Light comes in little packets or bundles and I hereby call them photons. Does that mean Newton was right all along when he said light was a particle? Well, then Einstein developed his theory of special relativity and said light was a field of waves. Yeah, I know. Confusing. So this takes us right back to square one. What is light? A wave? A particle? Or could it in fact be both? In some ways, Newton was right. Light can behave like a particle, like a photon. But at the same time, Maxwell was completely right. And Young, when they said that light behaved like a wave, light behaves as both. We call this wave-particle duality, and it's something that we see a lot of evidence for in science, but we still can't really explain why light will behave as a particle sometimes and a wave as others. Does this mean we still don't really know what light is? It kind of does. We still might find that there's a better explanation for light, or it may just be that light is going to remain this confusing thing that we don't quite understand. Light is clearly a teenager. It just can't make its mind up. That was Zephyr Penoya, who is studying physics at Cambridge University, and before him, Scott Mandelbrot. Now, most of us take for granted the ability to gaze at a beautiful sunset, to admire a great work of art, or to look longingly into the eyes of a loved one, or indeed your radio show co-presenter. But how do we see? And what happens when this process breaks down? 
Patrick Dagenar from Newcastle University works in the groundbreaking field of neuroprosthetics and he has an interest in devices that can restore or enhance vision. And he's with us now. Hello, Patrick. Good evening. How does the eye work? How does it convert, for want of a better phrase, light waves into brain waves? Fundamentally, light comes from objects. They go through the optics of the eye and then get imaged to the back of the eye called the retina. When the light hits the back of the retina, we have some cells called rods and cones which act as photoreceptors. They sense the light. Once they've sensed the light, then the signal goes through a series of processing. And then finally, the final stage of the eyes is cells called the retinal ganglion cells, which project through something called the optic nerve towards the back of the brain. And it's worth noting at the visual cortex, the part of the brain which processes our light is at the very back, which is why boxers, when they get punched in the face, uh, see stars, if you like, because that's the visual cortex pressing against the back of the skull. Sounds uncomfortable. So when someone has a problem with their vision, it could be any part of that pathway which is damaged or breaks down. But what are the common reasons why people lose the ability to see? The vast majority of people who lose sight on this planet are because of a condition known as cataracts. And that's where the the lens in the eye basically becomes opaque and um, can no longer allow light to come through. But in terms of what I'm interested in, which is in prosthetics, I'm much more interested in conditions which cause some damage but leave the remaining retina intact. One particular condition is called retinitis pigmentosa, which has a prevalence of about 1 in 3,000 people. And in this condition, the the light-sensing cells are destroyed, but this still leaves the rest of the eye intact. And if that leaves then the possibility that if you can communicate with those remaining cells, you can then communicate with the brain and therefore restore some kind of visual signal. So because the rods and cones have degenerated or broken down, there's no cell there that can physically collect light and turn it into electrical signals that the retina can work on. But because the rest of the retina does still work, were you able to put new signals in mimicking those missing rods and cones, you could potentially have a working visual system again? Correct. How might we be able to do what you're aspiring to achieve, Patrick? Well, for for many years, people have looked at visual cortical prosthesis. You know, it actually dates back to the uh, 1920s, in fact. But in 1992, people working on the retinitis pigmentosa disease discovered that the retinal ganglion cells were still intact. And for the last 20 years, various groups around the world have looked at implanting various types of electrodes and using those electrodes to stimulate the remaining cells. They could bring back some flashes of light, which... When there was sufficient electrodes in place, you could make some kind of very basic type of image. And is this working? Do we have devices that are capable of stimulating the right cells in the right place to create a visual image that makes sense? In basic theory, it shouldn't work at all. (laughs) But it works to a very simple level. Fundamentally mentioned before that the eye is really trying to process the world around us. And what the eye does is it splits the signal into on and off pathways. And these are kind of positive and negative. Fundamentally, this is about creating contrast. Now, there's only information if there's a difference between the plus and the minus pathways. So if you stick a big electrode in and stimulate both simultaneously, it shouldn't actually work at all. Turns out that the off pathway is just a little bit slower than the on pathway. And as a result, when you do the stimulus, you you get a little bit of contrast. You still get to see something, but it's, it's relatively weak. 
So just very briefly, Patrick, are we in a position where we can actually make devices that can stimulate the right bit of the eye to give people some kind of picture? There are now commercial devices in place which will give a very, very rudimentary vision. But the next generation of devices that are about to come out are based on a new technique called optogenetics. And these can basically genetically engineer a new layer in the light eye to be light sensitive. And this can then do that separation between on and off pathways much more accurately, much, much more stronger. And this should bring back some kind of vision. Well, you'd still be legally blind, but it would be significantly better than what is currently available. Patrick, thank you very much. Patrick Dagenar, he's from Newcastle University. Now, you're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and also with Katani. If you'd like to get in touch, then you can find us on Facebook. You can also look us up on Twitter. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. This week, we're looking at light because this year the world is celebrating the stuff. We've heard about how the eye uses light to see the world around us, but how do we actually perceive what's out there? What's going on in our brains? Isaac Newton was interested in whether colour is a product of the outside world or whether it's created inside the mind. And this led him, as we've heard, to stick objects into his eyes. Prior to him, the Greek philosopher Empedocles thought that light streamed out of the eyes bounced off things, and that's what enabled us to see. This does beg the question, how do we perceive colours and make sense of the world around us? We're joined now by UCL's physicist come neuroscientist Richard Clark, and he's been trying to figure out what happens. Hi, Richard. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi there. Now, I've got a pen in my hand. Surely this is what I'm seeing, as we heard from Patrick. Light going into my eyes, turning these on and off pathways, and, and it's a pen. Well, the honest answer is... It's kind of horrifying in some respects. You're making pretty much all of that up. What we do is we don't see a physical reality. We don't see what's out there. So what on earth am I seeing? Because it, it looks like a pen to me. Well, <laughs> well, let me tell you why we don't see physical reality. There's, there's two basic problems. The first one is very fundamental, and that's a problem with light itself. Light actually doesn't tell us what we think it tells us. We assume that it tells us about the objects out there in the world. We don't have to go out there and touch them. But it's really not that simple. Uh, light is a product of two things. It's the product of the reflectance of the surface of the object and the illumination, the quality of light that hits the surface in the first place. Cool. So all of that's kind of streaming into my eyeballs. And then what's telling me that I'm seeing something? What's happening next? Well, let me tell you, here's the problem with what's streaming into your eyeballs. You can't actually use the stimulus, the stuff, the light that hits the back of your eye to tell you what's in the world. We've got an example of this. Yes. The point of this is that the physical reality of what you're seeing, the light hitting your eye, is this mixture of two signals. And that's what we're going to hear. So it's a complete mess. Right. OK, let's hear the first demo music, Chris. That's two pieces of music played over the top of each other. Your brain's got to separate those two to make any meaning of what's going on. And it really does this magical thing of, of separating those two information streams. We have no idea how that's done. We can't make computers do that. Now, you said there was two things about this. What's the next step in actually perceiving something as, as being there? Well, this brings me to the brain. And here we start to really diverge from reality. This mess that hits the back of the eye... It gets flipped upside down and projected onto the back of the retina. And there, the photoreceptors turn this into a code. Now, this code leaves out some really pretty fundamental things about the light 
that it's trying to encode. For example, we don't encode absolute brightness. That seems incredible because I almost have this idea that the eye is a bit like a camera, you know, obviously a digital camera, it's a pixel and it's bright or it's dim. And you're saying we just don't even capture that. It's not in the code at all. Then how on earth am I making sense that my my brain is telling me that this is a pen? <laughs> well... This is a, that's a great question, and I'm not denying that there really is a pen there or something that we call a pen there. But So here's the really interesting thing. So the code then gets piped to the back of the brain to an area called V1. If you put your hand on the back of your neck mm-hmm. and feel the back of your head, give it a squeeze, that's where you're doing all your provision. It, now. Okay. it doesn't really feel like you're seeing from there, but that's really where you're seeing. And you would expect that you would get a bunch of inputs from the eye, that visual cortex would do all its processing and send the results to the rest of the brain. That's not what happens. What's really going on is that 95% of the inputs into V1 are from elsewhere in the brain. Only 5% come from the eye. So basically, my brain is just making up what I'm seeing. Basically, yeah, not all of it, but 95% of it. We've got another example from music about this kind of job that our brain does to, to infer some kind of sense from signals. Right, so the thing that we do see is we see meaning. There's a nice audio illusion from Diana Deutsch that shows the difference between what we perceive to be meaningful and what we perceive to be meaningless. That sounds like a weird 20th century composition. So then how, how does this illusion work? So hopefully you didn't really understand what was going on there. It sounds like a bunch of random notes. But actually you do know the tune. So if we just hear the unscramble, the original version now... Okay, hang on. I, I, I can't see the relationship between the two. Let's play the first one again. And, and now I, I hear it now. So the idea is that you're, you're experiencing something different. The information is the same, but you can't unlearn what you now know is the tune. Your brain is looking for meaning, and the reason you're experiencing it differently is because your brain is interested in pattern and it's making expectations. And this is kind of a little bit philosophical. So you're saying, like, in my mind, I have an idea of a pen, and I see something that kind of vaguely triggers that, and I go, it's a pen. Kind of. The point of the visual system is to make sure you know what to do next. It doesn't matter what's actually out there. Why would we have evolved this uh, almost quite efficient, I guess, way of just making up the stuff around us with with very minimal detail actually coming into our eyes? Because often there is a big difference between representing faithfully what's out there and representing something useful so that you know what to do with it. And that takes us on to the whole world of optical illusions are quite fun to look at. But then people say... I've seen, for example, a ghost. It could be a very useful thing. I mean, imagine you're in a forest late at night and you see a shadow moving. Now, what you might see is potentially a predator. That's a good thing because what your brain is cleverly doing is biasing your perceptions towards the thing that is useful for it to see. If you get that wrong, if it really is a predator, but you see a moving branch, you could be dead. 
is there any such thing as objective reality or actually for each person or anything that does see we do create our own subjective reality of, of the world around us we're certainly creating a subjective reality we have no option um, if you, the question is there such a thing as objective reality well <laughs> it's a pretty broad question I'm not sure I'm best placed to answer it certainly my belief is there is a, an objective reality and I'm not suggesting there isn't I, mean, I can tap I can tap my pen on a mic of course but yet you're using your other senses to confirm what you believe to be true about the nature of, of reality your other senses are just as different in the, in the way that they represent reality to reality itself there's no way for you to veridically show me oh well I, I'm touching the table so really there is a table there you're quietly blowing my mind so everyone can look around and think are we actually seeing anything real or not so uh, thank you very much for, for thought that's UCL's Richard Clark thank you very much pleasure Beyond just our ability to see light, since the 1930s, astronomers knew that the secrets of the universe could also be revealed using light. But in this case, it was light left over from the Big Bang and known as the cosmic microwave background. Initially, the problem was detecting it, though. Greg Jackson. A few kilometres west of Cambridge sits Millard Radio Astronomy Observatory, a collection of what looks like huge satellite dishes that stare at the sky day in, day out. They're on the hunt for a different kind of light, though, a type of light we can't see, and that's radio waves. I started working on radio waves in 1978 and then I moved to Cambridge in 1984, been working here ever since. That's Dr Anthony Lazenby, a cosmologist at Cambridge University and that buzzing noise you can hear is Amy. The whole telescope we're standing in is called Amy and that's for Arc Minute Micro Kelvin Imager. So that noise we just heard is uh, Amy moving to another source on the sky. If I were to put on some magic glasses that enabled me to see radio waves, just like Amy can, and I looked up at the sky today, what would I see? Well, you'd see some really bright sources. The sun emits strongly. And there's lots of individual radio sources, which uh, have been studied here for many years. But the thing that's behind them all would be a sort of pattern of stipples and little knots of what we call fluctuations in the background. You get hotter bits of the sky, less hot bits of the sky, and these are randomly arranged around us. And what would these blotches be? These are basically fossils. The actual photons we see today were emitted about 400,000 years after the Big Bang, and They're extremely important because if you look at their properties, you can infer lots of extremely interesting things about the universe. These fossilised photons were emitted shortly after the Big Bang and cosmologists refer to them collectively as the cosmic microwave background. But on discovery, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson of the telecommunications company Bell Labs initially thought it was something rather different. They were at Bell Telephone Labs and Bell were interested in understanding whether sort of the cosmic noise was possibly going to affect radio communication on Earth. And so an experiment was set up to basically monitor and measure these cosmic sources of noise. 
And one of the possible explanations for this noise was that it was much nearer to home. It was actually pigeon droppings in the antenna that they were using to look at the sky because anything locally which is warm will emit radiation and be like you know some universal source of noise if it's sufficiently close to you but they eliminated that they moved the pigeons out of their nest and i'm imagining scraped all the pigeon poo off with it exactly and after that they were put in touch with theorists at princeton university and they could tell from their observations that it really was intrinsic and coming from the whole sky and at that moment then the microwave background had been discovered Given that this was discovered in the 60s then, why are we still looking at the cosmic microwave background today? Because it's got this amazing information imprinted on it. But to find that information, you have to study it at much higher resolution than was possible initially. When Bell's team looked out to the universe, measurements of the cosmic background radiation were uniform across the sky. There were no hot patches or cold patches, and this was strange because the universe today, as we see it, isn't one smooth temperature. It's full of stars and galaxies, what cosmologists refer to as structures. And Bell's team should have been able to see footprints of these structures when they were first developing. AKA, they should have been able to see hotter patches and cooler patches imprinted on the sky. Baffling as this was, it turns out it was just a matter of making our telescopes see in higher resolution. And in 1992, a satellite called COBE hit the jackpot. It found these imprints, these ripples, everyone had been searching for. But COBE, followed by subsequent satellites like WMAP and Planck, were only just beginning to uncover the secrets of the universe. And even today, there's still much more to be understood. What proportion is there of dark energy? How much dark matter is there? How much ordinary matter is there? Is the universe open or closed or flat? All these things you can read off in great detail if you can get really precise measurements of the microwave background. So the quest continues with Amy and other satellites across the world? Um, Well, with Amy, certainly the quest continues. Satellites, that's another issue because um, Planck finished uh, about two years ago and we don't have another satellite at the moment and everyone is extremely keen that we have another mission which can map the whole sky, which only a satellite can do. Continuing the study of the microwave background is incredibly important for moving our physics theories. So we're all hopeful that there will be another satellite, but there isn't one yet. Greer Jackson speaking with Cambridge University's Professor Anthony Lazenby. And thank you very much to all our studio guests this week. That's Max Gray, Richard Clark, and Patrick Dagenar. And finally, it's time for Question of the Week. And Khalil Thurloway has been plugging his brain into this electrifying question from Bonga. Uh, is it possible to use eels as a source of electricity? All organisms give off a weak electric field. But electric eels are one of a small number of fish species that can generate strong pulses of electricity with their bodies, and they use them to great effect. But how do they do this? I spoke to Dr David Levan from the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Electric eels produce electricity in brief spikes in much the same way that humans do. When a human decides to move a muscle, an electric impulse called an action potential fires in your brain and travels through neurons, causing a muscle to contract. These individual signals carry very little power. 
The eels use a weak electric pulse to scan for the natural electric fields of smaller fish in the murky Amazonian waters where they live. Once they find something tasty, they send out a stronger pulse that can paralyze or even kill their victim, making for an easy meal. The cells that produce electricity in the eel, called electrocytes, also create action potentials. But the electrocytes are stacked together to increase the total voltage and current. Large eels can produce up to 600 volts. Ouch! 600 volts is nearly three times the voltage of Maine's electricity in the UK, and five times what you get in America. So can we harness this stunning power? It is technically feasible to power human devices from eels or electrocyte cells. But, practically speaking, the electricity from eels is not very useful for us. First, it's important to recognize that eels convert energy from the food they eat to electricity. There is no free energy. Secondly, electric eels are just not very efficient in producing electricity. It turns out they can convert about 15% of the energy in their food to electricity under ideal conditions in their natural environment. However, that value doesn't consider the energy needed to maintain them in an artificial habitat, energy needed to heat and purify their water, as well as the energy needed to grow and transport their food, all would reduce the efficiency even further if you were trying to domesticate them. This seems like a lot of effort. How does this compare to other renewable forms of energy? Commercially available solar panels, like you find on many roofs these days, are about 15% efficient in converting sunlight into electricity. And the newest solar materials coming out of research labs are about double that efficiency. So, for the most part, you'd be better off using sunlight to make electricity using solar panels rather than growing food to feed to an eel to make electricity. So, in answer to your question, yes, it is possible to harness the electricity of eels. But no, it isn't practical for our everyday electrical needs. There are some situations, however, where eel electrocytes might conceivably be a useful power source. For example, to power disposable biodegradable electronics. Scientists like Dr. Levan are also using what they've learned from electrocytes to inspire research into designing new artificial power sources. Thanks to David Levan for that electrifying answer. Next week, we'll be answering this cheesy question from Chris. Is it true that cheese gives you nightmares? So if you think cheese or any other food stuff for that matter gives you nightmares, you can email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or get stuck into the debate on the forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. I did buy some stinking bishop once and, um, well, the smell was a nightmare anyway. But that just about wraps things up for this week. Next time we're going to be lighting up listeners' brains because in recent years doctors have discovered that a significant cause of mental illness, including psychosis, depression and dementia, could be caused by the immune system attacking the brain. We'll be speaking with one lady who had a month of madness before she was diagnosed and treated. Thank you very much to Greer Jackson for production and to you at home for listening. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the Institute of Continuing Education at Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC and the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and goodbye.